powers. I want to focus on one sentence of David's this morning, but I'm going to have us read all of Psalm 86. This is the word of our God. A prayer of David. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and with I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are our help also, that you do bow down your ear to hear us, So we are bold in this hour to ask that you would help us to not only hear your word, but to receive it, to grow in it, that we might be more and more united in the fear of your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone brilliant once wrote the following, not me, someone brilliant, once wrote the following. If there is one thing worse 
than the modern weakening of moral, major morals. It is the modern strengthening of minor things. Thus, it is considered more withering to accuse a man of bad taste than of bad ethics. Cleanliness is not next to godliness nowadays, for cleanliness is made an essential and godliness is regarded as an offense. A playwright can attack the institution of marriage so long as he does not misrepresent the manners of society. G.K. Chesterton wrote that over a hundred years ago. And as I read it, I think, that's, that's us. That's our society, isn't it? What a bunch of hypocrites. When, when you can listen to a podcast or read a blog, and in the space of just a few lines of script, you have on the one hand Christianity being derided for being judgmental about morals which ought to be relative, and then one paragraph later, an accusation of guilt against anyone who doesn't hold the same view of nature or schooling or something like that, that at, at one point there used to be an understanding we could discuss and disagree about these things in a loving manner. It's such hypocrisy to flip from anti-morality to utter personally developed ethics. And yet it's not just our culture that's guilty of this. It's our own hearts, isn't it? In one sense, Christianity, the Christian life, not the gospel of how we're saved, but the Christian life is very simple. Jesus can pull one verse from Deuteronomy and one verse from Leviticus and tell us how simple the Christian life is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. Simple. And yet our hearts are not focused on this thing. They are divided They are fragmented between various lusts and passions, various loves, various confidence and hopes. And so this simple thing of living the Christian life becomes something that we struggle to do. In one sense, we're no different there from the society around us. Our hearts aren't united in focus and in service. And that's what David is getting at here in this psalm. When we read the first 10 verses of this psalm, David seems very focused and to have a very united heart. What a glorious declaration of worship and of trust. God is utterly unique, says David. There's none like God utter uniqueness. There's only one living and true God and all nations owe him worship. What a united, focused heart. And yet, the very next verse, verse 11, concludes, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Think if any of us 
were just journaling and just came up with verses 1 through 10, we might feel like that was the high point of our devotional life. Such commitment and focus. David gets that far and says, but I'm a hypocrite. I believe all of that, but I need something to change in my very heart. David knew Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord with all your heart, and he knew that he didn't keep it. Even on such a good day as being able to write Psalm 86, 1 through 10. David cries out, unite my heart to fear your name. Our hearts can be divided in a lot of ways. In scripture, we find the Christian's heart divided with insincerity at times. Uh, we, We could just think of an example in David's own life. If you pay attention when you're reading the story of David and Bathsheba, it's just all on one page for us. But realize that David committed adultery, killed Uriah, and then... How many months passed? It's like half a year before he's confronted. What's he doing every Sabbath during that time? He's going to the tabernacle. He's worshiping God with God's people, even leading them in this devotion. Our hearts can be fragmented with insincerity or irresolution. Think of both Joshua and Elisha. Confront the people with this word that we don't tend to use much today, vacillating. Why are your hearts vacillating between God and the idols? If the Lord is God, serve him. If the idols are God, serve them. There's a vacillation, that is, there's a divided, teeter-tottering aspect to those believers' lives. Now, some of them are false believers, but even those who are true believers, Joshua and Elijah are saying, stop going back and forth, because their hearts have this division. Paul gets at the idea of a struggle with a divided heart in himself in Romans 7, talking about himself as a converted man, he says, I love the things I I want to hate, and I hate the things I ought to love. I I both love God, and, and I want to serve myself in sin. I both hate my sins, but I want to keep doing them. There's an internal struggle in his heart. What of David's internal struggle as he gives this prayer request? In Psalm 86, he doesn't actually list for us the ways that his life was currently divided. But I, I think we can, we can draw two areas out from the psalm. From the fact that right in the middle of this psalm, he gives this prayer request. I think there are two areas at least hinted at in Psalm 86 where David struggled with a united heart. The first is heart idolatry. Why does David, in the midst of the most amazing statement of God's uniqueness, insert that he needs his heart united to fear such a unique God? 
Because while he speaks that way on the one hand, he struggles with other gods. I think that's implied by the fact that verse 8, he says, among the gods, there is none like you. Now, in the Psalms, often that's just a way of saying, uh, you know, humanity has created all these idols. And they're all false. They're dumb. They, they have ears but can't hear, mouths but cannot speak. They topple over for no reason. But, but we do know about David that David didn't believe there were actual gods behind those idols. And I think we can also draw from the Old Testament that among all of David's sins and struggles, he doesn't seem to have ever been drawn to actual physical idol worship. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was any number of things, a bad parent. But he didn't have idols hidden under his bed. He didn't sneak off on Monday morning to the high place to offer incense to Asherah or Baal. So why in the midst of his discussion of the uniqueness of God does he bring God's in and then a moment later cries out that he would have a heart undivided from God because David understands that not all idols are made of stone and wood. He understands that in the heart there are many idols. Anything that would draw our loyalty and fidelity away from the Lord. Anything that would draw our trust off of God and place our trust in something else than God. These are idols. They're vain idols. There's none like the Lord. And He is alone God, verse 10. And yet David knows what it is in the heart to feel that pull. Similar to what John Calvin wrote in the beginning of Institutes of the Christian Religion. He informs his reader that the the human mind is a factory of idols. And I know he was before the Industrial Revolution, but ever since high school when I first read that sentence, I just envisioned a conveyor belt. Our hearts are conveyor belts of idols. And no sooner is one produced and dealt with potentially than another's being produced. Isn't it interesting that so many who worship a false god usually worship and believe in many false gods? And we don't tend to have one secret sin. We tend to have a grouping of sins. David, David, I think, would have agreed with Calvin that his heart was a factory of idols. It was fragmented among, yes, the Lord's in the mix, isn't he? God, you have a part of my heart. You don't have all of it. Unite my heart to fear your name. When we think about our own daily struggle with sin, isn't it true that just when you think you've dealt with that one besetting sin and you're 
Maybe suddenly you're a little proud of yourself. You finally dealt with that one besetting sin. All of a sudden, all these other secret sins pop up. Running right off that conveyor belt. David cries out, unite my heart. Make it faithful and make it single for you. Because he knows heart idolatry is a very real struggle that would pull his heart in many directions. I think the other thing hinted at in the psalm that we see more clearly in some of David's other psalms is from the the last half, verses 14 through the end, and that is fearful anxiety. His heart is divided because of fearful anxiety. Now, here it seems, just like the first ten verses, that David is in the good place. God, the proud have risen up against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious. Deal with them. But how many other psalms, before David gets to that positive ending, does he first express something very similar as pulling his heart into fear and discouragement and depression and anxiety. So that in Psalm 13, for example, he even says, How long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? These people are against me. There's a fearful anxiety in that. And David's aware that his heart isn't immune to it. Fearful anxiety that often springs out of putting our trust in the wrong things. I trusted in that relationship, that person, that friendship. That was what gave me strength in life. Now they've turned against me. What hope do I have? I trusted in that bank account, that job, that security. That 401k or my investment banker or whatever. I trusted in Wall Street. Now it's let me down. How am I going to live out my days? Fearful anxiety springs from the heart trusting in the wrong things. And then those wrong things always let us down in some way. And David knew what fearful anxiety felt like. Let me just pick one extreme example for us that shows how our hearts can be divided by fearful anxiety. In the New Testament, we're told that in grief, we believers of all humanity can grieve as those who have hope and not as the world who grieves without hope. But how many of you, even as believers in time of grief, have had those, maybe it's just a moment, where you feel hopeless, where it feels like too much, where it feels like you can't endure? That comes because, even as a believer, like David, your heart is not solely united in the fear of the Lord. And thankfully, for the believer, usually the Holy Spirit steps in, maybe through a friend, from a note you get in the mail, 
or from reading the scriptures and that peace surpassing understanding returns. But we know that there are those moments when in our hearts, even as believers, there is the fragmentation that leads to fearful anxiety or depression. David knew these things as well. How do we gain an undivided heart? Well, David's simple answer seems to be pray for it. That that you can't gain it on your own. Lord, I'm aware that my heart is fragmented. You unite my heart to fear your name. But I think in verse 11, David also gives you two very practical hints at how you can pursue this union of heart in the fear of the Lord. If we divide up, Walt and Barb and I were joking around this week that Barb and I like outlining things. So Psalm 86, 11 has A, B, and C, right? Three, three separate statements. The third one is, unite my heart to fear your name. But the first two show us the practical steps we ought to take, even as we're praying to God to unite our hearts to fear his name. What does David say? Lord, teach me your way, O Lord. What's that as a practical step? Where is David going to learn God's way in the word? Through the reading, he as a king actually had access. He had to write it out himself. I don't know if he ever did that, but he was supposed to have written it out himself. All of Genesis through Deuteronomy, he had access to his own personal copy. Not everyone did, but also through the preaching of the word. David, David knows if his heart is to be united to the fear of the Lord, he must be a man of God's ways, knowing them in his mind. And so also you, if you are divided in your heart between loyalties, the word The word is where you learn about God and what duties he requires of you, which leads to David's second thought there, 11b, I will walk in your truth. David is saying the second practical step isn't just head knowledge, but taking that head knowledge and living it out, walking it out, obeying God's law, living for him day by day. God, unite our hearts to fear your name. Teach us your ways in your word and cause us to walk in them. That's what David's saying. Unite my heart. Isn't it an astonishing sentence David has here? Unite my heart. He doesn't say to be at peace in your name. To know the goodness of your name. He says, unite my heart to fear your name. Maybe we could even draw from this that David is saying, unite my heart by fearing your name. That in the fear of the Lord would be the drawing together of our affections the drawing together of our consistency in practice, living for him, 
and trusting him in the fear of the Lord. We're not comfortable with thoughts like the fear of the Lord in our day and age. We like the words love and goodness, both of which are, of course, in our text. But it is the fear of the Lord that will bring a unifying aspect to our lives. Actually, that's what the entire book of Ecclesiastes in the end of the day says, isn't it? There's a man who on your behalf, so you don't have to, tests out affections and hopes and trusts in various areas, sets his heart towards all sorts of things. Money, riches, philosophy, academia, workaholism, pleasures and parties. He even has a couple of paragraphs in there about coming to worship and worshiping in the way that seems right to you, at the end of which he can't help himself. He says, but fear God. But how does the book end after testing all these fragmented affections of the heart and trusts that the heart could have? He comes to the end and he declares, this is the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, even every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the conclusion. Fear God. Fear God. There is a unifying factor for your heart. But what is the fear of the Lord? It's not in Scripture an abject terror. There is that type of fear, isn't there? If you're an unbeliever and you come face to face with the God of the universe who is holy, infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, infinitely just, who is the judge and who cannot be bribed, then abject terror should be your response. But in Scripture, the fear of the Lord for the believer is a completely different thing. It's not abject terror. It's what the Puritans would have called something like paternal fear. The fear of a child for their father. And when that phrase is used in the Puritans, they don't mean the fear of a child for an abusive father. That would be abject terror, wouldn't it? That's why there are a few things more despicable and sickening than abusive parents because there is a level of parental fear that is then tainted because it's a betrayal of the worst kind. Abject terror. But in Scripture we're shown the opposite of that, the good father. A father who we have by adoption in Christ Jesus. And for him, there is a reverent fear. There is an awe. There is a marveling at him and how great he is, and yet we get to call him father.
Now, this example, of course, comes completely out of the blue and has no life experience behind it. But if a child wakes up in the middle of the night terrified because of shadows and imaginations in the room, there's abject terror. How is it that the insertion of mom or dad into that room can change everything? How is it that dad just sitting on the edge of the bed or or mom laying down in bed go right to sleep now? The, The shadows are all still right there, aren't they? Doesn't it come down? I know children don't verbalize it this way, but doesn't it come down to this thought? That the shadows ought to be far more scared of dad than the child should be of the, of the shadows. The fear of the Lord is the fear that isn't terror but is awe. This one who, I suppose this is the logic of of the mind at a young age, this one who has power over the shadows, who terrifies the dark, loves me and does me good a very different type of terror. I'm sorry, it's not terror. (laughs) Different type of fear altogether, isn't it? Jeremiah chapter 33. God is talking about his covenant people and all these things he's going to do for them. In, In fact, he talks directly in there among many good things of forgiving them and cleansing their sin. And this is the comment he makes to them in Jeremiah 33, 9. God declares that for his people, he will cause them to fear and tremble because of all the good that he has done for them. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Michael Reeves in a recent book, has suggested that we would write that verse very differently if it was just left up to any of us. We might, we might expect the verse to say that we will fear and tremble because of all the holiness of God. Or that we would celebrate and rejoice because of all the good he has done us. But God says, I will teach you fear and trembling by doing you good. Isn't that the cross? The cross for the one who repents of their sins and looks to Christ alone for salvation, the foot of the cross is where abject terror is taken away. But it's not taken away and left leaving us with a void. There we're taught to fear 
as an adopted child, our infinitely holy, loving, just, powerful, gracious adoptive father. The fear of the Lord. That at the foot of the cross, the perfect, righteous, holy, judge, eternal, gives his son to stand in our place and bear the penalty that the guilty sinner deserves. When you think about the cross and the propitiation, the atonement, the the Christ taking the penalty that takes place there judicially, that hell, which would be an eternity for us to pay the penalty for our guilty sin, is taken out on Christ in a matter of hours and multiplied for each one who believes. The compact experience of the eternal wrath of God, at the end of which Christ is able to cry out, It is finished. No wrath of the judge left for the one who believes. Isn't that a, I use this word in the old way, a terrible thing to see. Terrible as in astonishing. More than we can comprehend more than we can get our minds around. It's the kind of fear that we learn at the foot of the cross that leads us to infinite joy. Leads us to peace that surpasses understanding and experiences. There we learn a fear that terrifies all the dark that would intrude into our hearts. So that when all others fail, the fear of the Lord holds our heart straight and steady and united in hope. But again, We all know, like David, that even as believers, our hearts are wayward and fragmented. We forget about the cross. Or we downplay it. We take the love we ought to have for God as our Heavenly Father and change it from a a love that is reverently fearful and amazed at this powerful God who so loved us that he spared not his own son. 
And we allow familiarity to breed contempt. We view God as something less than he is. And then other things invade in our hearts, other hopes, other trusts, other affections. And even the believer who's been a believer for decades, like David, must cry out, unite my heart to fear your name. Teach me your ways. Cause me to walk in them, that I might not love the world and the things of the world, but that I might love you, Father, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my might, that I might imitate my Savior and love my neighbor as myself. Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. May that be our prayer this day and every day until we see him and our hearts never are torn from him again, for we will see him.